0: And welcome to the Dairy Dialogue podcast, and it's the 160th, and the last one before we slide into the advent calendar openings. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and the week and the month seem to have just slipped away again. Now that COP26 is a distant memory, I've not received any press releases on methane or carbon or sustainability. Or maybe I just didn't see them. I do get a lot of emails. That's my excuse for everything. I did get a couple of thank yous for videos that I did at Anuga, which was nice. I have them all up and edited now, so you're more than welcome to check them out. I'm not sure when the next set of videos will be. I'm hoping to take a trip at the beginning of December, but we'll see how that goes as some of those videos are still in the planning stage. The dreaded L-word lockdown seems to be hanging over some countries. There are some in Europe having a hard time with rising infection rates, But the opposite side of the coin is people are generally fed up with the restrictions, which has led to a lot of protests. So it all feels a little bit precarious at the moment. I managed to fill the house this week, although not with water. Although having said that, it probably went down just as well as if it had been water. I was in a charity store, or a thrift store, leafing through the CDs, hoping to find something interesting, which rarely happens. But as I was looking, someone from the store came over and asked if I liked music. It was one of those, are frogs waterproof questions? Of course, I've been involved with music for years. So I said yes, definitely. She kind of sheepishly said someone had just brought in a couple of boxes of CDs and they didn't have any room for them, so would I like to buy them? i said yes of course and she said how about ten pounds which i don't know it's about fifteen u s dollars so i brought my car around to the back of the store and she brought the boxes out only it wasn't a couple of boxes they kept on coming there weren't two there were ten and I gave up counting the CDs when I reached 1500. I ended up tossing around 300 of them, either because they were missing CDs or because they were in terrible condition, but I did find quite a few decent ones, including a few autographed ones and some unusual classical CDs. I was pretty happy about it, and it's going to take a while to listen to it all, but I think that's the fun part. I'm not really sure anybody else in the house was that happy about it though. Unfortunately, I can't listen to music while I'm editing interviews for the podcast, so I will tell you who we have as guests this week. We have conversations with four people, two from the same company, with Pim von Hay, Innovation Manager, Dairy and Dairy Alternatives, and Eric van Berg, Product Application Expert, Fages at DSM Food Specialties. We also talk with Research Analyst at Defend Our Health, Rupa Kritivassen, and Pascal van Leeuwen. Marketing Manager for Consumer Products at MilkoBell. We also have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland at Stone X. And that means it's time to look back over the news from the past seven days to see what you may have missed. If this was a quiz and I had to try and remember the articles from last week, I'd fail miserably. Starbucks is partnering with Arla in the UK on sustainable sourcing. Perfect Day entered the protein powder category, and IFF invested $87 million in Indonesia to support growth in Asia. As I mentioned earlier, there were a few video interviews on companies I found interesting at Anuga. Danone is spending 43 million euros to switch a dairy factory in France to plant-based to meet growing demand. And we also had a special newsletter on flavors and colors. Night Food won the Real California Milk Accelerator competition, and we hope to have an interview with the winners on the show soon. The ACCC, hope I got the right number of C's there, in Australia is moving from educating companies about the Dairy Code to enforcing it. And the EMB called for key reforms in the EU agricultural system and climate strategies. Givaudin opened its Nordic Experience Centre in Sweden. California received a $1.8 million Dairy Business Innovation Initiative Award for the Pacific Coast Coalition, and a Swedish company has developed a pretty interesting-looking bio-based cup lid for hot beverages. You can read all of these, watch all of the videos, and read much more at dairyreporter.com. And that means it's time for our first interview, and this week it's with DSM – and we're talking about viruses. Fortunately, it's not COVID, because DSM recently launched the Delvo Phage Test Kit, which can detect phages in dairy within an hour. And that can help increase cheese yield and quality, it can reduce waste, and also boost value in cheese production by between 5 and 10%. To tell us all about it are Pim Innovation Manager Dairy and Dairy Alternatives, who you will hear from first. And Eric van den Berg, Product Application Expert, Fages at DSM Food Specialties. I guess the first and most obvious question is what you are trying to solve with the relatively new solution and what it's designed to do.
1: So, well, first of all, thanks for inviting us, Jim, to to talk about this exciting new innovation that we just brought to market. Um, so basically, our Delvo Phage Test Kit, it's a qPCR-based test that can quantify bacterial phages throughout the dairy production process at the point of need, so basically next to the production line. And this analysis, it takes one hour, and that's significantly faster than the conventional ways for phage testing, because those take at least four hours to return the results. And this allows uh, dairies to react more proactively against phage problems. Uh, So basically, it's the fastest testing solution available on the market. And by getting the results faster, it helps uh, dairies to uh, increase cheese yield and quality, uh, reduce waste or downgrades, and overall boost the value in cheese production. So overall, I think uh, we bring uh, great value through this
2: product.
0: And what was the product introduced to address in terms of the problem with phages?
2: Well, as you are aware, bacteriophages are viruses that uh, infect and, and ultimately destroy lactic acid bacteria, and we need those lactic acid bacteria in order to produce cheese or yogurt. Therefore, they disrupt the process with significant financial losses as a result, like Pim just explained.
0: And you mentioned that this is the fastest on the market. How is this an improvement on existing methods?
2: Well, Currently, I think it's fair to say that that most dairies routinely take samples in order to monitor phage pressure uh, present at the dairy and this is a service which is uh, often uh, offered by the culture supplier and typically these results will take anywhere between five to ten days. Alternatively, dairies can also perform an in-house assay, a so-called activity assay, but this will still take anywhere between four to eight hours. And because of this relatively long lag time, these results often come too late and they do not help the dairy to really prevent the issues before they occur. And
1: with that, Jim, uh, we, we basically said that our test delivers results in an hour. So if you step into the life of a cheese producer, they start uh, on average a new batch of cheese production every 20 minutes. So if you get the results in at minimum four hours, you're already down 12 batches. Huh? With our test, you get the results within one hour. So it's at maximum three batches are uh, produced and then you can already react and I think it's obvious that, well, phages replicate very quickly in dairy processes. So you can imagine that with 12 batches on their way, it's very likely that if you had a phage in the first batch, you get problems in batch number 12. By reducing the analytical time and getting the response faster, you can be ahead of those problems and actually switch to new culture rotations or come up with a solution to prevent problems from occurring. And as I stressed, the problems that can occur actually affect cheese yield, productivity in the factory, and cheese quality. At
0: what point in the cheese production process are these tests done?
2: Well, basically, the test can be used throughout the whole process. So any typical sample you would find in a dairy environment uh, can be analyzed using this method. But the main focus would be on the milk and on the whey.
0: Do people take the samples or the workers take the samples and then they see the results themselves within an hour? Are they the ones that do the entire process and see the results or does it need to, how does the actual testing work?
1: Yeah, we had a sharp eye on the user-friendliness during the development of this test. So basically the ease of use you can compare with the COVID self tests that people do at home nowadays. So really it's super user-friendly and easy to use. Anyone can do
0: it. You said it's the operator that would actually get the results.
2: Typically, yes. But I've also seen people from the QC lab performing the analysis. It's a little bit how things are organized at that specific dairy. But like Pim just said, it's really a test that can be performed by anyone with only a minimum amount of training that is required.
0: And in terms of the reaction time, obviously, when you're looking at the difference between one hour and four to eight hours, what does that allow the cheesemaker to do if they see a positive result?
2: Well, seeing a positive result in itself isn't that frightening, but seeing an increase in phage concentration, that is something to really be keen on because that means that phages are multiplying in your process and it is about time to act and what can be done when you see these phage concentrations rising in your process. There's, of course, the option of rotating to a phage-independent rotation, or you can intensify cleaning.
0: And so what other benefits does this new solution have for cheese manufacturers?
1: Yeah, so, so overall, we basically indicated uh, the impact on yield and cheese quality. So for cheese producers, it's key that they hit a certain pH value before they separate the whey from the curd. If you don't hit that pH value, which of course uh, slowdowns because of bacterial phage impacts can do, then basically you don't get the moisture content that you want and also potentially don't get the texture and flavor that you want. And of course, cheese producers are very key on every day producing the same quality of cheese with uh, often relatively high volumes. So overall, this test ensures that there's more tight control in processing.
0: And is it relevant to all kinds of cheeses or are there specific cheeses that it works better with or does it apply to every kind from soft right through to hard cheeses?
2: Shall I take that question, Pim? It's not designed to be used for any specific type of cheese. Just uh, to remind you, this is a qPCR assay, so we are actually detecting phage DNA, and phages don't care about what type of cheese (laughs) you are making, actually, so you're not limited to a certain type of cheese or also to a culture supplier. It's just detecting phages in your process.
0: And how does this fit in with the other methods and the other portfolio of products that you have to help cheesemakers?
1: Yeah, so the Delvo Fage Test Kit is part of uh, our leading uh, integrated uh, portfolio for phage management solutions. We basically have complemented the phage Test Kit with uh, an app called Delvo Analytics, and that app supports customers in the way sample analysis that they do nowadays, or at least they have their supplier us, uh, DSM, uh, perform for them. And this app is available uh, 24-7, obviously. They send in the waste samples. Uh, they request the waste sample analysis through the app. They send in the way samples, and then they get the results back through this app. And in this app, they can actually access all the weight testing data that they have. So the Delvo phase Test Kit allows customers to do phage testing themselves. Uh, with the service of Delvo Analytics, we also do some weight testing for them and to link it also to our DSM phage experts. Then overall, DSM has a broad portfolio of solutions that we uh, bring to the dairy industry that ranges from uh, raw milk to actually uh, the final dairy products. And uh, we believe that these tests uh, fit well in giving the customer the full support they need in optimizing their processes.
0: This is something I, I assume that would be applicable anywhere. You could use this anywhere in the world.
1: Yeah, yeah the system is portable, so it has a battery. And... Basically, uh, can run for at least four hours uh, without uh, external power supply. So, indeed, the idea is you can bring it into the factory at any point and any location and start an essay if needed. And so, that you said
0: if the four hours does that mean it's a rechargeable unit? Yeah, you can basically hook it on
1: to the power but uh, also have it standalone.
2: Yeah. Results are basically expressed on a scale from zero to five. Zero, obviously, meaning no phage was detected, it was below. Detection level 5, meaning we detected a very high level of phage in your sample.
0: It's been a couple of months since it came out and since the press release came out. Um, what's the reaction been like to it? I assume it's already being used in several companies around the world.
1: Yeah, we have basically introduced the product in the US and in Europe. And uh, at the moment, yeah, we have a, a lot of customers testing the equipment and seeing what value it brings to their dairy. So, uh, yeah, a lot of uh, response and also positive responses.
0: Cheese isn't cheap when it comes to the production process, it must be. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about tens of thousands of euros per batch, I would assume.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You have big, big dairies converting in the order of one million liters of milk a day. That is a heck of a lot of cheese being produced. So if something goes wrong or if you have a downgrade where you have to sacrifice about one euro per kilogram of cheese because the value of the cheese you produced is lower, then uh, that's significant amounts uh, going through the process.
0: Next, it's to Pascal Van Leeuwen, Marketing Manager for Consumer Products at Milko Bell. And the company is now making its Brugge cheese CO2 neutral. I wonder if you could tell me first what your customers are saying about, before we even get to talk about the the new product, the cheese, what customers are saying about sustainability and climate change?
3: What we see, and I think it's everywhere in retail markets, that customers using sustainability as a way to differentiate themselves. I think that every customer is looking for CO2 reduction or neutrality or even positivity. It depends a bit from their positioning. And next to that... They choose different angles to tackle sustainability. It could be about circularity. It can be about food waste. It can be about sustainable production. It can be about human rights. But CO2 is something they all have in common. Yeah, it's an important uh, strategic topic for them.
0: And again, the cheese notwithstanding, how are you addressing sustainability and climate change?
3: For us, it's not a new thing, of course. As a cooperative, we are tackling the whole value chain from a responsible way of farming. The Belgian farmers have reduced already over the last 20 years their CO2 with 30%, uh, which is quite impressive. And they have also a below average footprint when you compare with the rest of the world. So it's not that we, oh, oops, we have an idea, we need to uh, work on sustainability, let's do this. No, it's already something which is going on for quite some years. Also, Milkobel, what we are trying to do is to stimulate all sustainable measures they can take, and mainly the farmers, because, of course, when you look at cheese production, the biggest footprint, CO2 footprint, lays with the farmer. And that doesn't mean that we don't take... The opportunity to work also on the cheese production, but the farmer is a big chunk. Milko Bell started working uh, with what we are calling a sustainability monitor, where we monitor every measure they take and taking into account how they do it. They are uh, being rewarded with that uh, with a sustainability fee. So the more they take action on that team, the more they are rewarded for that. That sustainability monitor, it's really something which uh, Milko Bell takes the lead within the industry in Belgium to uh, install that and uh, use it now as a technique to take step-by-step progress in the first part of the value chain.
0: And so you have the new product. How is that being made to address these needs?
3: As a matter of fact, Brugge Cheese is the biggest Belgian cheese brand in our market. It's really about high quality. It's an outspoken taste. It's really for cheese lovers. It's not for people who see cheese as a functional product, but more as a real enjoyment product. So for us, the starting point is always to have the same quality, the same products uh, with the same high quality standard, but it, now it's being produced and made on a CO2 neutral
0: way. And what does that involve? How do you make it that way?
3: It all started by measuring our complete footprint from cow until cheese, so the whole value chain, taking into account all the different parts uh, from production, packaging, transportation of the milk to the cheese factories. It is an important step. Then uh, we have defined a reduction plan because we have done already some efforts on reducing, but for the next step to set up a reduction plan within uh, the whole value chain, and the part we can't uh, compensate with reduction is being offsetted with a climate neutral projects.
0: And as far as the labeling, there are quite a few different schemes around. And I think that must be a little bit confusing for consumers. I wonder how you chose to work with CO2 Logic and how independent the group is.
3: I think for us was... Most important is that we know that sustainability is a driver for consumers to choose between products. It's not the first in the decision tree, that's for sure. Like I said, it needs to be a great product. Also, price is rather important. Eh? So it's not that it's the main driver, but nevertheless, it is a driver which can uh, influence the choice between brands. But we know that the biggest challenge, so the demand is there, but the biggest challenge is to bring it in a credible way for consumers. That is the biggest challenge on sustainability. So that's why it was important for us to work with an independent organization. So we have now chosen CO2 Logic, but also if you would have chosen another one, what is the most important thing is that it's being audited by an external organization. And so, OK, we are working with CO2 Logic, but in order to bring it on a credible way and to avoid greenwashing our calculation of the footprint, the reduction plan, etc., is audited by FinSOT. It's an independent organization who check all our steps we have taken for this CO2-neutral claim. So it's an official certification, independent, in order to bring it in a credible way. Why we have chosen CO2 Logic? Because we have evaluated different companies. And because we saw that CO2 Logic has an experience which could help us and our sector had really relevant expertise on that was something which uh, helped uh, because uh, they really have a broad experience. And at that time, they were a local partner. And so they were a Belgian company. In the meantime, they are being taken over. But that were a bit our criteria, uh, the experience. And uh, due to the fact that it was a local partner at that time.
0: And how does the cheese fit in with your portfolio of other cheeses? And can we expect to see all of your other products following in this example? Or maybe some new products?
3: Uh, What for us is important is that Brugge Cheese is a well-known brand in Belgium. And we want to take leadership with that brand. And this means also not only offering best quality and a delicious uh, experience to their consumers, but also make it on a responsible way. So that's why we started with Brugge Cheese as taking up leadership on the brand. But for sure, other propositions will follow in the future, for sure. So it's a step-by-step approach we're taking.
0: So eventually, as many of your products as possible will have the same kind of characteristics? That's our aim, yes. You mentioned that you're doing a lot on farm. Are you doing other things like at your plants to address sustainability and energy savings, that kind of thing?
3: On the plant level, yes, we are doing uh, a lot. For instance, to give you an idea, already the past five years, we reduced our energy efficiency per kilogram cheese produced by... 23% in the last five years. And we have set targets to reduce the emissions from our production process uh, by 35% in 2035. And so we have done already a big step, but we set new targets for the future. What we also are doing is combining heat and power plants, because in that sense we can provide more sustainable energy Also in terms of water, half of the water which is required, we do that from extraction from the milk process and we upgrade that water to drinking water quality. In that sense, we can use it afterwards, for instance, to clean equipment and other ways where we need water that is clean, but that can be recycled after the milk processing part. So these are some examples of things we are doing or will do further on. Also an important part for us is the packaging. Cheese is a product with a limited shelf life. It's a natural product. And for our pre-packed cheeses, we choose to further work with plastics because it guarantees the best shelf life for our products. And food waste is a very important driver, which has an impact on our climate. We don't want to make sacrifices on that, so that's why we have chosen for 100% plastics. But we need to make them 100% recyclable and also work with a high percentage of recycled material. And we do this also step by step. We uh, started with the packaging of our slices. When you have a look at the cheese markets, pre-packed in Belgium, half of the hard cheeses are packed in slicing format. This is the first we have tackled. Also. The little APRO cubes we are selling are also in recyclable packaging, which is 100% recyclable and also consists out of recycled material. And the the last one which we will tackle in 2022 is the flow packs for the wedges of cheese. Uh, So also on packaging, we are making uh, some nice progress next to the fact that we already reduced enormously the amount of plastic that we use. So it's reduce, recycle and also the composition we are working on.
0: And now it's to the US, to the organization Defend Our Health. And we spoke with research analyst Rupa Kritivasan. Defend Our Health is a non-profit organization working to ensure all people have equal access to safe food and drinking water and products that are toxic-free and climate-friendly. And the organization has researched and produced a toxic-free food contact guide. All right, so I wonder if we could kick it off with a bit of background on Defend Our Health. Of course.
4: Defend Our Health is an environmental health nonprofit. We're based in the US. And our work primarily addresses toxic chemicals in food, in water, and in consumer products. And we've worked on food packaging for a really long time. Um, and among other things, we've passed legislation in our state of Maine to ban a number of chemicals that are known to be toxic to humans, that includes phthalates and PFAS chemicals. And that we've passed laws to ban them from packaging and other products. And we've also worked with retailers and manufacturers to eliminate toxins from food packaging. And so a lot of the work we do, I think, is essential across the food supply chain.
0: What are these issues when it comes to toxicity in food packaging? I mean, you tend to think about food as being important to health, but people don't really pay that much attention to packaging. Absolutely.
4: Yeah, it's in reality, there's actually a number of health impacts that are associated with chemicals that are found in packaging and processing equipment. So there's cancer, asthma, harm to reproductive health that are associated with many of these chemicals. And what happens is that they are used in making things like plastics and paperboard. And then they transfer from those surfaces to food and beverages. As a couple of examples, there's a class of chemicals called phthalates, which are plasticizer additives. They're added to plastics to make them soft and bendy. And they're found in everything from food handling gloves to in dairy hosing and tubing. And then there's a class of chemicals called PFAS. They're used for nonstick properties and for their greaseproof properties. So you find them coating things like conveyor belts and paper packaging. And with both of these, they transfer from the packaging and from the equipment to food and then into our bodies as consumers when we eat them. And it's really unfortunate that these chemicals are even still found in our packaging because they're in use despite the fact that there are many readily available alternatives available. And if we switch to those, we would be limiting
0: consumers' exposure to toxic chemicals. And how does this apply to dairy products in terms of packaging?
4: With dairy... We have products, we have food products, that are going to come into contact with a number of different surfaces from the time they leave the cow to the point where they reach consumers. So you have inflations and tubing that are used during milking. You have things like conveyor belts during processing. Um, You have the packaging materials. If you're in a deli or a fast food restaurant, they're going to be touched by food handling gloves. And again, when all of these contacts happen, You have chemicals that can migrate from these surfaces to the dairy products, and then that becomes a problem for consumers and for the companies that are manufacturing and producing these dairy products. So for one example, our independent testing a few years ago found that some very popular macaroni and cheese products they typically market their products towards busy families um, as quick child-friendly meals, but we also found that they contain high levels of phthalates. So these are those chemicals, again, that we know have negative health impacts. Um, And ultimately, the suppliers along the dairy chain, these companies are responsible for making sure that toxic chemicals aren't making their way into the final product, and that involves monitoring their products all along the supply chain including at the source such as at the dairy farm for things like mac
0: and cheese. Does there it's kind of a little bit of an aside, but is there a lot yeah. of potential for these chemicals to leach into foods? Or are we talking about absolutely minute amounts that are safe? Or
4: So what's really interesting is that It seems to be all over the board. We're finding phthalates in all kinds of products in small quantities and large quantities. Phthalates are actually a large class of chemicals. They're all plasticizers, but there are a number of different formulations. And sometimes there are certain ones you don't find at all. Other times you find them in shockingly high quantities. And again, you don't really learn this until you've tested products to see what's in them. But our testing has found that a lot of dairy products do have phthalates in them and at levels that are not considered safe for human consumption.
0: Is that how you get your information from doing the testing yourself or how do you get all of the data on all of the products?
4: Right, so there's a couple of different things. As I said, we have done some independent testing on some dairy products and other products. Um, There are also a number of studies out there some of which are directly testing the products themselves and then quantifying contaminants that are in the packaging or that have migrated into the food. There's a whole other set of uh, data and research out there that looks into various aspects of toxicity. So there are toxicological studies that look at what these chemicals are actually doing To mammalian bodies. So that could be through using something like lab rats in controlled settings. There are studies that are more natural experiments that look at how health outcomes are different based on how much exposure people have to different toxins. And so there's a lot of different research that we're pulling from starting from stuff we've done ourselves, as well as a number of peer-reviewed journal articles that are testing products and looking at their impacts. And then these are all the kinds of studies that everyone from the World Health Organization to the European Food Safety Authority and other major institutions are leveraging to apply to their policy decisions. And so the American Academy of Pediatrics, for example, looks at all of these studies and has come to the conclusion that the chemicals that are used in food contact can contribute to disease and disability, especially in children, and therefore we should be relying on these studies to inform better policy decisions around food safety. So we're looking at some of these same studies ourselves to come to um, conclusions about what are better products that we could be using in uh, food supply chains.
0: Could you tell me a bit about the new online guide that you've developed?
4: Absolutely. The new Toxic-Free Food Contact Guide is a web-based guide intended to help companies avoid chemicals that are of consumer concern and that can migrate from food products during food processing, packaging, and service. And it's relevant to anyone anywhere in the food supply chain, whether you're a restaurant, a food brand, a processor, or if you're a dairy or other farm. And through this site, what we're doing is providing information on which materials are better from a both a human health and environmental perspective, and we provide information about some of the suppliers that we've identified, you carry those products. So to give you an example there, one of the products that we feature is tubing. So if you're a dairy farmer and your main concern around tubing typically will have to do with how much it costs. If it's effective at its particular job, you might be interested in understanding its durability. So you're likely to have a good way to get information about those particular things. But what you might not have as much information about is the potential health impacts associated with different materials that can be used in tubing. So what our site helps you understand is what are the relative health costs and benefits to your consumers? if you go with one type of tubing, say that's made of polyethylene versus silicone versus one that's made of some sort of rubber. So we let you know what options are out there and how some of them are better than others.
0: And I guess some of that is down to finances as well as to whether it's financially viable. I mean, if there are no regulations, is it just easy enough to say, well, we're not going to bother?
4: There are many things on the market that you could potentially use. We don't get very deep into actual cost to the farmer. We're not going to say, you know, this is a full cost benefit analysis that looks both at what this will cost to you as well as the hidden cost to your consumers. We're really focusing on that part that most people don't know about, the part which is the health costs borne by consumers. But as I said, the other information is out there. And, you know, we're trying to condense a lot of information into one place that really focuses on this untold story.
0: And how easy is it for companies or users of this website to find the information they're looking for?
4: Um, We hope very easy. We've tried to make it as easy to use a website as possible. So, when you first enter the site, it gives you a little bit of just background on why you should care about this issue, why you should care about toxic chemicals and food contact. But then, after that, the information is organized so that you can understand what's happening with every single article of interest that we have. There's an easy to use drop down menu. You can look at what products we list. And then, for each one of those, we let you know a little bit about why it's important to think about food contact for that particular article, what some of the safety concerns are around it. And then we list various products that exist for that article. So again, if you're looking at something like conveyor belts, it tells you what the different materials are that you can get that conveyor belts are made of. And we include a color-coded way of seeing which ones are preferred which ones are things that you should be trying to phase out and which materials you should be avoiding entirely because of their health costs
0: and is this something that consumers can use as well because i can imagine that it would be useful for consumers to be able to look up information and be able to put pressure on for instance a cheese company and say hey look are you what are you using this packaging can you switch to this
4: Absolutely. I think I I always think it's better for consumers to be armed with as much information as possible. Um, I definitely think that this site could help with that. But in terms of how we've designed it, we're very much thinking about the industry user and what information would be most crucial for them to have clarity around what their decision should be. So, one other thing that we have in addition to just information about these products that would be more interesting i think to industry users than to your average consumer is who the suppliers are so me as someone who you know wakes up in the morning and you know consumes some yogurt or whatever i probably won't care where i can find polyethylene tubing but if you're someone who runs a dairy that's probably more interesting to you and that's information you can find on the site
0: and so it would benefit everyone i assume then from the farm right through to the processor
4: yeah, I very much hope that it's something that's beneficial to anyone involved in any part of the supply chain. I think that you know the main focus, again, is on farmers, on brand owners, and restaurants. But what we're trying to do is offer guidance, not just for each of those points along the supply chain, but encourage industry users to then look what's happening upstream in their supply chain and say, once I've dealt with my own operations, who can I talk to upstream to make sure that the products that I'm processing for example, are being treated in the best way possible before they get to me. And we're also hoping that it's useful to suppliers who are saying, hey, I carry some of these safer products. Maybe I should think more about having more of that, talking to my farmers about using some of those products and letting them know that there's these alternatives that exist that are better for their consumers.
0: And I assume it's also good for communication as well, because if you're a company that is using a lot of the good products, then you can use that as a promotional tool to say that, hey, we're not doing anything bad with our packaging.
4: I absolutely hope so. Yes, again, because I'm hoping that this is communicating very clearly what the benefits are of switching, I do think companies should be able to say, yes, we are making the best possible decision we can, given the information that's out there.
0: And will it be useful for legislators as well?
4: That's a good question. I think it can feed into what is now just an enormous amount of information about food safety and um, food contact safety in particular. I do think it joins a growing set of resources that can help push for better laws around these things as well.
0: And so I assume that it'll be something that has a constantly updated database because of all of the changes all the time? Yeah, what we're
4: hoping to do is as more information becomes available about better products that are entering the market, as we learn about new suppliers who are actually selling some of these um, preferred products, and you know, as we learn more about the science, we will try to keep things updated. We might also add other articles that are used in the food industry that aren't currently on the site yet, as we learn from folks in industry about what they're using and what their concerns around are are around food contact. And so we'll be making these updates. And, you know, for anyone who's interested, you can sign up or subscribe to get updates, which will be, you know, hopefully on a quarterly basis. Um, But yes, we're absolutely hoping to keep things up to date.
0: And where do people find this?
4: So the website is ToxicFreeFoodContact.org.
0: So no hyphens in there. All no
4: hyphens, just straight sure. up ToxicFreeFoodContact.org. Yep.
0: And now it's over to the Stone X office in Dublin to see what's happening in the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland. Hi, Charlie.
5: Hi, Jim. A bit of a, an interesting week this week in the markets. Prices have been, I would say, very, very stable, uh, still holding up at reasonably high levels. But in general, activity has been very low, even though from the data side, it's been quite a lot of bits of information uh, released in the last week or so. I mean, if we look at the fundamental information, it's still a situation of the milk is continuing to look pretty poor pretty much everywhere. I mean, the U.S. numbers were out last week, showing um, milk collections down uh, 0.5% on the latest numbers. EU numbers look like we're just getting them here this morning for September will be down about uh, 0.7%. And actually, even New Zealand now is starting to look weaker on uh, the back of poor weather. So the supply side of the market still looks uh, pretty tight. But that said, we're starting to see some hints that maybe the demand is starting to, to suffer a little bit here at these higher levels. I mean, this week we've seen some um, October cold storage reports released from the US where we see cheese stocks were were higher than expected. We also see the October Chinese imports, which were lower than expected, down about 2.7%. And we were forecasting them up about uh, 5%, so significantly lower than expected there. Um, so a bit of a mixed uh, picture out there on the on the data side. Um, I mean, still in general, if if you look uh, at the market, it it feels like you know still under pressure. Milk collection is still too tight for the demand that is out there, but also we're starting to see buyers um, reluctant to paying these high prices. So there does seem to be some pullback in certain areas and in certain products. Um, And I guess the big question now is, um, will the demand destruction at these levels be enough to bring these prices uh, down a little bit? Or do we need to fix the supply side first, um, which which may take another several months?
0: Thanks, Charlie. Hopefully we will talk to you again next week on Advent Calendar Day 1. Although maybe not, because if I'm on a trip, then obviously we will have to pre-record the podcast. Stone X provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. Well, that does it for another week and also for the month. I'm not exactly sure what the schedule is for podcasts in December. There definitely won't be one on the 29th, and I'm not really sure about the 22nd either. I won't reveal who is on next week, not because I enjoy cliffhangers and I want to make you eager with anticipation, but because usually when I say who's on, it changes. I did have my flu jab this week, the first time I've had one of those, and I'm still waiting for an appointment for my COVID booster, so I have that to look forward to as well. There was an eclipse last week that we all missed because the weather spoiled it. And we've also had our first sub-zero temperatures. That's Celsius, of course. Well, I made it through another podcast recording without the dog barking. Fortunately, when he did that during one of the interviews this week, it was an easy edit. So wherever in the world you're listening from, I hope you enjoyed the podcast this week and will join us again next time. Until then, take care, stay safe, and as always, thanks for listening.